this week on the Back Table Podcast. So I do think timely feedback is important. We also have to consider the time, right? The time and the place. You know, should this feedback be happening in the middle of the hallway? Should it be happening outside the patient's room? Should it be happening in the OR? Is this a huge event that this actually probably needs a, a bigger debrief, maybe that day, but maybe not in the moment? A lot of that, I think, goes into when we have that feedback. But it is important, I think, for it to be timely. I think we just have to figure out, we really have to be thoughtful about what timely is uh, because giving feedback is one thing, receiving feedback is another. And in our hierarchical system of who's giving feedback and who's receiving feedback, I do think that we have a responsibility to consider that. It's not always about us. But to your point, I do think it's important to get that feedback about how you can change before the end of a rotation, because that's that's what you did. That's not how you can improve. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist in Dallas, Texas at UT Southwestern. And my name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. We are your hosts, and we're so glad you stopped by to check out the podcast today. Gopi, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. Today's a little bit different. We usually record... Um, on weekend mornings, but today sort of uh, midweek, uh, sort of end of the work day. But this is, I think, going to be my bright spot in my day today. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Awesome. Yes, we have a great guest. Um, I'll jump into the introduction. We have Dr. Carrie Francis. She is an associate professor of otolaryngology and an associate dean for workforce innovation and empowerment in the Faculty Affairs and Development Office at Kansas University Medical Center. She is a surgeon career development strategist, speaker, and writer. Dr. Francis has served the health professions community through innovation and empowerment. With a distinguished career as a surgeon and educator, she has been involved in leadership from admissions through coaching and mentorship during training to establishing a pipeline of underrepresented students of color to the field of ENT. She's developed leadership and cultural competency Curricula for Practicing Otolaryngologists and published on clinical otolaryngology, racism in medicine, and mentorship for formal and informal publication sites. Dr. Francis is passionate about guiding personal and professional development for faculty, trainees, and students while helping them build a strategy of authentic alignment between their career goals and purpose. She is here today to talk to us about mentoring and coaching in medical education. Welcome to the show, Dr. Carrie Francis. Wow. Thank you for that warm welcome. I appreciate it. Um, I was listening and thinking, man, who are they talking about? And um, then I have to remind myself, that's me. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Um, would you like to first just tell us a little bit about, about yourself and your practice? You know, you're a pediatric otolaryngologist but yet, you know, still aren't a dean in the medical school. And so I'd love to hear just about you and sort of your role practice. Well, sure. Um, first, truly, thank you all for inviting me to your podcast today. I'm excited um, to be here and just to have a chat. 
But to your question, I am a pediatric otolaryngologist. So shout out to the two pediatric otolaryngologists um, today. And I do have a busy surgical practice. um, And I also spend um, now about 50% of my time as a medical education leader in our faculty affairs and development office, as you mentioned. That transition really Um, And we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but that transition has definitely been um, in the making and sort of a vision and a goal of mine since coming out of um, residency and fellowship. And um, it's been a great opportunity for me to challenge myself in different ways. I absolutely chose academic medicine and fellowship because I wanted to stay in the sort of educational realm. And I have learned so much from the residents and the learners around me, as well as my colleagues, about what it really means to be a educator. And I've also learned so much from my peer support network and from my mentorship circle and from my personal coaches on really, you know, leaning into who I am and where I want to be. And I'm just really proud of the fact that I've been able to get where I am based on my unique advantage, who I am as a person, my strengths, working on my weaknesses, of course, uh, but really trusting in self and hopefully helping guide and serve the next generation of folks who want to be whoever they want to be within medicine. That's beautiful. I love that. So it sounds like you have had a lot of good influences and mentorship and coaches in your life and now um, have the opportunity to turn around and be that for other people too. Yeah, that's probably the thing that I really enjoy the most with, you know, mentorship and and even with coaching principles. You know, it's really a bi-directional and committed relationship. And I think that that is really the most important lesson that I've learned, lesson number one, right? That my ability to mentor is as good as my ability to be a mentee. And I have lots of experience and expertise. And there are people who have a lot of experience and expertise that I also need to learn from just to continue to grow. Can we back up for a second, Dr. Francis? Um, So we've used educator, mentor, coach. Are those terms interchangeable in academic medicine? So like as an attending in academic medicine, do I play all of those roles to the resident or fellow who is with me? Do they mean different things? So that's that's really a great question. And I will start off by saying that all of those I think are necessary for or both of those are necessary for success in education. And I believe that mentorship and coaching can draw out the best in people in different ways. Technically, you know, a mentor has knowledge in a particular area and will share it with you. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist. You, Dr. Shah, are a pediatric otolaryngologist. We can guide someone into the field and help them develop a career strategy. And it's a mutually beneficial endeavor. It definitely promotes growth and insight and learning, I think, for both parties. Coaching, on the other hand, a friend, a coach, a certified coach and friend has said to me that coaching um, is for when you need to step back to move forward. 
And that has always stuck with me about coaching principles uh, that I read about, that I try to learn about and employ as I engage with learners. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but they are certainly different approaches to how you guide. You know, a coach is not necessarily required to have direct experience in the field they're coaching in, um, as opposed to a mentor in general. Um, you're going to a mentor to say, hey, I want to be a researcher in this field and you are that person. And I want to learn from you. I want to um, really engage with you on what will help me succeed. And so I think that um, there's a Venn diagram there with both of those. I think they are certainly important and can be useful in areas of growth at all stages, students, faculty, and residents and fellows as is a mentor. That's super helpful because those were, you know, those terms get thrown around. Um, so that's very helpful. Thank you. So um, looking at the the 50% of the time that you are not wearing your pediatric otolaryngology cap, you are the Associate Dean for Workforce Innovation and Empowerment in the Faculty Affairs and Development Office. So tell us more about, you know, what, what does that mean? What are, you, what are you doing? What types of activities are you doing with that time? Oh, yeah, sure. So we have a, a great team in our Faculty Affairs and Development Office, um, myself and another associate dean, Dr. Brad Barth, who is an emergency medicine physician, um, as well as our senior associate dean, who actually happens to be a basic science PhD researcher in the Department of Otolaryngology. So we kind of got a thing going on there, as well as um, an, an amazing team of administrators and directors um, as far as putting our work forward. Specifically, uh, what we're, you know, the big focus on what our university and campus is doing right now in the School of Medicine is really focusing a lot on our curriculum and anti-racism and how anti-racism principles um, really is translated. Translated is probably not the best word. How an anti-racism curriculum really is in a longitudinal approach between or from UME, our undergraduate medical education to graduate medical education and even into the faculty realm. So, you know, right now, one of my biggest roles is really helping our faculty with the educational responsibility they have as teachers, right? What does it mean to look at what we know differently? What does it mean to actually review our curriculum and see what may need to change? What haven't we thought about before using an anti-racism lens in particular, um, an inclusion lens, diversity, equity lens that we want our graduates to understand? There can be a huge gap between um, the generation that is coming into medicine versus the faculty that are educating them. And one of the big roles I have right now is helping bridge that gap, which I think is very exciting as well as very important to help our students, but also to help ourselves. And together, we are really able to then provide better care for all of our patients. I think um, once you start looking at at the curriculum and medical education as a whole and in general, there are so many glaring opportunities for change once you start thinking and looking with this anti-racism lens. Um, so I think that must be, you know, really exciting and 
very powerful to be able to be a part of that change at your institution. It is, it's definitely, it, and really one of the things that I appreciate most about it is the ability to collaborate with so many invested parties across disciplines and just across spaces. I've expanded my own circle of friends, I can say. I've expanded my own circle of peer mentors, peer coaches, research collaborators, just by uh, really being involved in this process. And it, it's certainly been a pleasure to do. I wanted to talk to you about mentoring and dive into that a little bit more. And, and it might be helpful to talk about both being a mentor and being a mentee. And how can I be a good mentor? How can I be a good mentee? What do we wish that our mentees knew in order to kind of help drive that relationship and, and get the most from that? That's a question that comes up a lot, and I can imagine that you <laughs> would find a bunch of different answers from a bunch of different people. What I think is important about both of those relationships is really setting the expectation of what the relationship is intended for, and that can come from either party. I think it is a responsibility of both people, uh, certainly from a mentee's perspective, what you are seeking out a mentor for. Uh, is it for research? Is it for career guidance? Is it for uh, educational leadership? Is it for leadership in a different realm or something else that I haven't named? And I think really understanding what you want out of the relationship from a mentee's perspective is also very helpful because it can guide the relationship that you're developing. And similarly for a mentor, a mentor may not be the person that is saying, you know, hey, Dr. Shah, I need to be your mentor. <laughs> but often it is um, a Dr. Shah asking someone else to be their mentor or in certain circumstances being assigned formal mentors like in a residency program. And even in that space, I think a mentor really co-creating the goals for the relationship with the mentee is foundational to a successful relationship. And I know that sort of takes a step back from, I think, what often is discussed about what a mentor-mentee relationship looks like. But I think that's so important because what happens next, I truly believe, is a function of what happens first. And I think that is a very important part of it. There is no one way to have a mentoring relationship it could be a formally assigned mentor. It could be a mentoring relationship that happens organically. You know, I even encourage people to have virtual mentors. I have lots of virtual mentors. They have no idea that they're my mentor, but they are. Um, <laughs> I consume content. I read their publications. You know, I follow them on Twitter or something like that. And I learn from them. So, you know, but that is knowing what I want out of a specific relationship. They don't have to be long-term commitments. They can be short-term commitments. It is really just dependent on what you want and what both parties agree to. So I, again, um, setting expectations about what the relationship is for and what that will look like, I, I think is super important. And, you know, I think the second aspect that I think is important in a mentoring relationship is recognizing that both people can benefit from a mentoring relationship. I think I said this a little earlier, but I learn just as much from the people that I mentor 
And, you know, I feel like I definitely get as much mentoring from them on certain elements of life and practice as I provide. I have expertise, they have expertise. Um, and so we can work together in that type of mentoring relationship. No, no these are great points because it, it makes more sense when you set it, when you define it this way. I feel like in our program, we've always kind of, you know, go back and forth of, should we have assigned mentors for our residents? Should this be more of an organic, you know, relationship that develops over the five years? Um, and then, you know, you do the assigned thing. Okay, but then what? And do you feel like, you know, if you do have an assigned program, do you feel like the relationship should be defined individually per the relationship or, hey, or there should be overall goal of your, we have this mentorship in our program and these are the goals for this relationship once you're assigned with the mentor? Is that kind of how some of the assigned mentorships work better or... Yeah, I think a lot of training programs and even in medical school, you kind of had that model um, as well. And I do think that that can be successful. I think that it also, this is probably point three of a successful mentoring relationship is that it does not have to be lifelong, right? And so I think sometimes people get stuck in this is my mentor and this is the only person that can be my mentor. When in reality, you really want a broad network of mentors because no one mentor, a mentor is sharing their expertise with you and no one mentor is probably going to be able to provide you with all of the guidance um, based on their expertise that you need. And so I do think formal mentoring relationships can work. I do think that they require a lot of reflection and sort of revisiting, like, is this working? Does this work for our program? You know, with a residency program, as an example, we we have turnover, turnover in the sense of people graduate and, and new residents come in. And so, you know, for a cohort five, something may work really well. And you might find three years later that your new cohort, something different might work. And I think that flexibility of what mentoring can look like is important. We're all very busy. And so I think things like this that are not necessarily considered, you know, the they're considered softer parts of an educational process can easily be overlooked in the midst of, you know, I got to figure out my chart and I need to do this patient and schedule this case and all of those things that are absolutely important. But for all of our sakes, you know, as it relates to our understanding of wellness and our ability to really live in purpose within our career so that we are definitely rejuvenated by the things that we do every day, these, these relationships and how we structure them really do have to be evaluated often. So, you know, again, a formally assigned relationship can work. I still think it's super important to establish what those expectations are. You know, is this the person that you have to meet with every six months because they are the person that is going to provide feedback at the clinical competency committee meeting? You know, and so what does that mentoring relationship look like? Is it something that we just want you to have a touch point as a new intern? that we're not necessarily relying on for a full five years of residency. And so I think really deciding on what the relation in a formally assigned program, what the relationship is for and what is the outcome that you want from a mentoring relationship. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think thinking back on times when I've been in the mentoring role, either with residents or students, 
I get a little bit hung up on how often do I need to be checking in and reaching out to them and like if it's like a for example a student who's applying to otolaryngology like I get very nervous and mm-hmm. you know I want to make sure I'm I'm telling them everything I can and I don't leave anything out and I'm setting them up for success and and but also you know recognizing that um like you said we have a full plate of other things we have to be doing and you you want them to kind of meet you halfway and to be cup coming you know um they may decide they want to do another, you know, specialty. I've, I've definitely had that happen where they're on my radar. I'm making sure that they're signing up for classes and then they just kind of ghost. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it breaks my heart. You know, I just get I get too invested. <laughs> this is a great segue because is mentoring a medical student different? Because in the residency, their career pathway is olaryngology. And we've all kind of done that career pathway in that five years is we get it. You know, once you've gone through that, you, you've gone through it and you get it. Is mentoring a medical school, uh, medical student uh, different? Uh, the needs are, I guess, different. Uh, but how, how is it different for you? For me, the structure and philosophy is the same and the strategy just looks different for each person at each different stage. So as you said, a medical student who is going into otolaryngology or is interested in going into otolaryngology needs a different type of mentorship than someone who is, you know, a student who, you know, saw me at an interest group meeting and said, man, that's a surgeon. And I think that I'm interested in surgery and, you know, I want mentorship and how to prepare myself for surgery. And so I think, again, that goes back to the goals. Like what does, what does the person need and want and need? What do they think they need? And am I the person to give that to them? I think on both ends, people, you know, I mentioned that students often feel like, or the mentee can often feel like that relationship can be the only relationship or just the one relationship. But I often think that the mentors, sometimes we forget that we're not always the best people to mentor someone. And maybe a medical student who is unsure of what they want and just kind of wants general guidance because, you know, we, I would say that for us, as an example, in our stage, we have that expertise in having gone through medical school um, and residency and potentially fellowship. So we've been in that process and we can provide some guidance, but maybe what their needs are is not something that you feel like you can provide guidance for. You know, maybe 25 years out of residency, maybe you're not the best person to provide general life guidance on navigating medical school if you've been you know, remote from that process as an educator, as an educator or or in another position. And so sometimes I think mentors forget that we can also say, you know what, I don't think I'm the best person, right? I oftentimes we're flattered, I think, you know, people see you as someone that they want to look up to. And, you know, the example or the metaphor I kind of use for people a lot when we discuss mentoring relationships is, you know, we actually tell students to ask people if they can write good letters of recommendation. And we tell, you know, faculty not to write letters of recommendation for people that they cannot support, you know, wholeheartedly. And that is the same philosophy that I tend to apply. You know, I went into medicine to serve um, people and 
over the years that has developed in me a passion to serve those who serve. And so that's kind of where I've ended up. And so I see everyone as having a unique need at each stage of their career. So, you know, circling back to your question, uh, original question, Dr. Shah, you know, medical students definitely need mentorship that may look different than residents or even junior faculty. There are many shared experiences and there that I may have and be able to support. And there are some that I may say, you know what? You have an interest, you are an MD, PhD student, and there's only so much that I can mentor you in. And so let's talk about what I can help you with and let me help you find the person that can mentor you in the XYZ goal you have. And and at different periods, people just need reminders that they're awesome. (laughs) Sometimes people need support navigating transitions. Um, Sometimes people need uh, shared or guidance around clarity and focus. I think all of those are really important in how we mentor people at different stages. You bring up a lot of really great, great points. And I want to um, dive into um, maybe talking about giving feedback, mainly like as the mentor, how do you give feedback that is constructive and without kind of making your mentee defensive? Like, how how do you deliver that? I could all be the cheerleader. I know how to pump you up. (laughs) I will make you feel like you are on top of the world. I can do that. Yes. (laughs) However, that's not always what's necessary, needed, or effective or constructive. It's not going to help them in the long run. And so... These conversations are hard. Uh, constructive feedback is not easy, whether it's the medical student, the resident, your partners. But let's stick with the medical student because I think that's where it's at. So let's get into that for sure. No, yeah, that is a great, that's a great topic. Um, I give a lecture on learners who aren't meeting expectations um, as part of sort of a feedback series and a clinical teaching um, certificate program that we have at our university. Um, And I just, you know, I hate to say I love feedback, right? But I do think it's an art and it's one that I am still, you know, navigating. I finesse all of the time. You know, I gave feedback to a resident at the end of our clinic day last week. And I thought about it like 40 minutes later and then texted them and was like, here's what I think that I did not do well in that conversation. And we just kind of had a conversation about it. And they were like, oh, no, this was everything I needed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then sometimes, you know, when I reflect, I get feedback like, oh, yeah, perhaps that would have been a little bit better. But that's always helped me refine my approach. So first, I think we often think of feedback as separate from teaching, you know, that it ends with what was done right and what was done wrong. But I do think of feedback as as teaching. And, you know, we are all learners at each level and we all benefit from that because we benefit we all benefit from teaching. And feedback is super important because we're always giving 
feedback to learners, positive or negative, consciously or unconsciously, we're always giving feedback. And I am sure that we've all been in a situation where it was like, wow, that was rough. Um, That was rough for me giving it or that was rough for me receiving it. And so how we give feedback is super important for growth and really improving the skills of the learner at at each level. And there's so much that one could talk about feedback, but I think the most important component of feedback, I think, is first creating a culture of safety for your learner. And again, you know, my approach to a lot of these concepts are really taking a step back to really move forward, but creating a culture of safety for your learner to be able to give the constructive feedback. Um, I've mentioned setting expectations before, but I think that that's important, setting the expectations for the learners and in your team. And my expectation begins with sort of implanting a growth mindset for the learner or for the team. You know, I set the expectation that you come into clinic and the OR with specific goals for the day or for the case. In giving feedback, I really try to focus on the process and not just the result to really encourage growth and development. I try to like normalize any struggles and give examples of challenges I've overcome, just like how I started off the answer. You know, hey, I don't always give good feedback. I reflected on our conversation. Here's where I don't think I gave good feedback. And, you know, give me feedback on that. And that is how I refine my approach and and how I've got better. But it also then helps me give better feedback. I have found with myself that there is like a huge disconnect in that feedback process, especially early on in me thinking that I always had to be right about the feedback or that my perception of what was happening was the only percept or was the only reality and that, you know, some outcome is sort of the end of it. And I had to really learn for myself to really co-create with the person that I'm giving feedback for or feedback to. And that then I had to take a step back and realize that I can't really co-create unless we built a relationship based on expectations and trust. And I don't always do that perfectly, but I definitely strive to do it better every time. I, I love that. Give, give me feedback about my feedback giving ability. <laughs> exactly. And I don't, you know, I don't always, I know we're talking about feedback, but I honestly don't always say the words. And I know there's always the conversation about how people don't know they're giving feedback unless you say, I'm giving you feedback right now. And I personally have found that always very odd, not not wrong, but just uncomfortable for me. Like, Hi, person, I'm giving you feedback. Now let's start feedback. Um, I get it, but it also felt very weird (laughs) to me. So I definitely, I tried to incorporate it as part of my everyday. And I'm sure, and I'm, you know, not perfect about it every day, good days, bad days, but I'm sure uh, some of my residents are probably like, goodness gracious, we have to talk about goals so often. I'm just going to stay out of that OR. But I think it's important because there is so much that's created for us, you know, medicine, medical school, residency, even some ways into that transition to junior faculty. You know, we're told where we need to be, what milestones we have to achieve there. You don't have a lot of agency in that process. And 
what I have found for myself is it took a while to really get that back, right? As a faculty member, realizing that nobody is coming for me as a faculty member, that I actually can create those things for myself. And so what I wished I had done or what I wish someone had told me was that I can actually start creating some of these goals for myself and really learning how to reflect and refine my process. Because again, it's a process and I'm always growing. So I really do try to begin and end with that, getting the learner's perspective on their performance because I know what their goals are um, and then working together to co-create, refine and then develop an action plan for continued progress. Like, you know, okay, so uh, getting the mouth gag in place for this, you know, TNA for APGY1 was a little difficult. Why do you think it was difficult? What is the, what are you going to do differently? What are the behaviors that you want to keep doing? What are the behaviors that you want to change? And then on the next case, like what, what do you want to work on? For me, I really try to avoid, I really try to push residents in particular past I want to do the case or like I want to do the whole case because that's really that's not really something you can achieve. I mean, you can just do the whole case. I mean, that's not really a thing. Um, if somebody lets you do the case and, and you are, are safe and, you know, with repetition, you can finish a case. But that's not the art of the surgery and that's not the art of the learning. And so it may be that you you know, put the mouth gag in and you take out the adenoids and that process itself was your goal and you've accomplished that. And I think what I found is accomplishing the goals you set out for yourself have become far more important than a goal of finishing or doing the case. Because with that, I feel like learners are able to better see their own progress. And when you're able to better see your own progress, you're able to co maintain commitment and motivation to then go farther. And so my goal is always to get people to the edge of their sort of abilities. And that's usually, you know, that, you know, 10 to 20% past what their goals are. But what I don't want to do is set people up to feel like they haven't been able to accomplish or that they're not good enough because it's just kind of like, okay, well, now you're flailing. Let me take over. And so I have been socialized in a you know, process of medicine and surgical training that I'm really trying to move away from or move beyond. And so being imperfectly, you know, imperfect, it is something I have to remind myself to do. Because in the middle of a day, in the middle of a busy OR, in the middle of a busy clinic, um, it's hard. But I think it's one thing that has been super important for my growth and my ability to provide feedback and really watching um, learners grow. And that gives me so much pleasure more than anything else. So I guess like the lesson from that is I really encourage people to create their own goals so that I'm not the only one giving feedback, that they're actually evaluating themselves at the same time. And we're able to sort of co-create, we're able to sort of co-develop that feedback. No, I think that's really helpful. I think you said agency and authenticity. I mean, it's it's basically being honest with each other as well as with yourself. And I, I think that's very important, especially in residency. Um, and I liked how you used the word social. I was socialized differently in residency. Cultures, that culture is shifting, it's changing. Yeah. I think that's great because I think that in terms of it all fits in with that 
end of, you know, of the end of being well and avoiding burnout and changing the culture to allow for growth so that a uh, career in medicine is sustainable and otolaryngology is sustainable. Yeah. And I think that's very much internal, you know, not, not completely internal, but you know, a lot of that drive, that agency, our ability to bring our full selves to our workplace and to our work relies on our internal, not really motivation, but our internal commitment. And so we kind of have to, you know, ask the questions and do the work to figure out what that is. And so that's why I think mentorship and coaching is super important in this whole medical education process, because I have found that that we're stripped of that or the way I have looked at the reflecting back, we're stripped on that of that often in the educational process and sort of getting that back, particularly on the tail end as a faculty member. It's difficult and that can allow for languishing, that can allow for just really not fulfilling or not achieving what you could achieve uh, because, you know, maybe as a faculty member, you're still sort of functioning as a, as a trainee um, and making that shift is, is super important. And I feel like that's where you need a lot of support. And before we move on from feedback, is it important for feedback to be timely? Um, so, for example, like sometimes, you know, I'm the the uh, medical student clerkship director for for a department. So every now and then I'll get an email or a call from one of my colleagues saying, you know, that they maybe they had a student in clinic and this is what happened. And, you know, you, you should really talk to them kind of thing. <laughs> um, and I'll be like, well, did you talk to them at all? Like in that in that moment, in that real time. And a lot of times it's uncomfortable, I guess, you know, to kind of to do that. And so. How important is it to kind of like give feedback in the moment? And can it still be, I mean, I think I think the answer is probably yes, but, you know, what's the difference when you're getting the feedback, you know, two weeks later when the rotation is over? I know, that sucks. <laughs> so, you know, I think, you know, there's a role for summative feedback, right? As, as we have summative evaluations and sort of getting, um, you know, getting that two-week you know, or after your month of ENT rotation or whatever evaluation, I'm kind of seeing where you are. You know, I again, I, I won't talk about it, but it, it ties back to what the expectations are. So we really have to be evaluating people on what the expectations were and are, um, as opposed to the expectation is X, Y, and Z. But, you know, the feedback is around, you know, other things that really weren't identified. So I think that's one thing. I, I really think that formative feedback is important because it helps form, right? Like you really, it's difficult to change a behavior that you're really not sure what the behavior was. And so when you're receiving feedback sometimes later on, it's hard to do that. So I do think timely feedback is important. We also have to consider the time right? The time and the place. You know, should this feedback be happening in the middle of the hallway? Should it be happening outside the patient's room? Should it be happening in the OR? Is this a huge event that this actually probably needs a, a bigger debrief, maybe that day, but maybe not in the moment? A lot of that, I think, goes into when we have that feedback. But it is important, I think, for it to be timely. I think we just have to figure out, we really have to be thoughtful about what timely is uh, because giving feedback is one thing, receiving feedback is another. And in our hierarchical system of who's giving feedback and who's receiving feedback, I do think that we have a responsibility to consider that. It's not always about us, 
But to your point, I do think it's important to get that feedback about how you can change before the end of a rotation, because that's that's what you did. That's not how you can improve. Right. Yeah, I've had one person say, I wish I had known earlier. And I remember kicking myself being like, why was I so afraid to tell this person earlier when I knew? And so I, I, I do think timely is very important. Because people don't always know. Like we have this idea of what we think people should be doing or where they should be. But that's that's not always what people, other people are thinking. Like, I, I think I've learned so much more that all of our realities are different. You know, even the way I am processing this conversation is going to be different than how you two are processing this conversation and your listeners, you know, the things that you'll take away, the things that you'll be like, I totally disagree with that or, or I totally believe in that. So, yeah, I really tried to take a step back and, you know, ask the question of what am I missing rather than what do I need to tell them to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to get a chance to talk about specifically medical students applying to otolaryngology. You know, our, our specialty has become increasingly competitive. And I'm sure in your position, you're, you have students who are coming to you saying, you know, I want to be like you. How, how do I be like you? And so, you know, how do those meetings happen? What are you looking for on their CVs? Um, what are you trying to, like, learn about them in that, that first meeting? And how do you kind of counsel them when the stakes are just getting so high? And I feel like every time I meet with these students, there's just more stress about deciding early and how many research projects do I need to do? And, you know, do I need to take a year off? Now I can't do a wave. Yes, exactly. You know, there's like, I feel like when I was applying for otolaryngology, there was like a plan A and a plan B. And now the conversations I have, they're like plan you and I'm just like whoa I can't like I can't even process this I'm not even sure how how you are making it um but those conversations I I am still learning how to do those conversations better and I know your your audience will probably hate this but it's true it really depends on the person and the stage they're at at any given time so you know someone who is coming into ENT you know, later as an M3 versus someone who is coming into it as an M1, you know, what mentorship or what guidance they'll receive may look a little bit different. But I do admit there are some components that I think are important to consider sort of foundational and leadership and scholarship, I would say academics and relationships are um, some of the few that are coming to my head now. You know, each of us does bring something different to the table, different experiences, goals, expertise. So I do believe a successful strategy varies um, depending on all of that. And so an M1, you know, has four, well, three years to sort of create a CV. Um, and our conversations may discuss how to leverage the strong components of their CV that they currently have. Uh, maybe the M3 at the beginning of M3 year, who's just realizing they're interested in ENT, you know, that conversation may look different. And so that may be, okay, what do we have? And what what are the challenges that you may encounter? How do we mitigate and or change them? So it does look a little bit, it does look a little bit different. And, you know, one, I think the biggest takeaway that I have from meetings with medical students who are interested in ENT and are really 
kind of, you know, in a flux of like, is this going to work? It's competitive, all of that. Is I really try to focus them back on not just what they've done, you know, not that you've been president of five things or, you know, have 15 publications or, you know, five presentations or that you're AOA or that you know this person, because all of those are just lists of things. They don't really tell me about the person. And I really try to focus students on how do all of those things make you you? Because that's the difference. That is really what I think drives in a holistic review process that really drives like, who is this person and how do they fit? Um, how can they fit into what we what we want as a department? And I think departments have a responsibility as well to sort of define their values because, you know, what your values are really dictates the type of applicant you're looking for. There aren't bad applicants to otolaryngology. There are applicants who fit, who, you know, are part of that, that will really fit into that system, that value system that a department has. And that kind of changes like regularly with new faculty, with new residents, all of that. And so I think having those conversations from a departmental standpoint is important. And for students, really leveraging not what they've done, but how those experiences have made them who they are. Everyone comes into medicine to help people, you know, I have air quotes going to serve people. And that that's really important. That's like fundamental. But how, what about where you are, what you bring to the table is going to help you, not relative to anybody else, but what, what do you bring that is going to actually help you fulfill that goal? And that's really the, the direction that I try to bring into the conversation is that, you know, comparison is not going to help you. And actually, it really kind of instills more imposterism than anything else. The reality is, is that how do you go from point A in your lane to point D? Um, and how have the experiences that you've had really helped you get there? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point. And that's a, a great segue into another question. But, um, you know, we talked about in your intro about the authentic alignment between career goals and purpose. And that makes sense for the applicant. Now, on the flip side, here we are, you know, looking at 2022. Step one's going to be pass, fail. We, as a department, need to figure out who the department's authentically aligning values to then match up. So I guess my question for you is, what are your thoughts on, um, with, and we just, and you said, you know, departments are big, your faculty's changing, and you have a lot of opinions about what's important, where, quote, AOA and a step one, a lot of the numerics going away, too. And so that's going to change, obviously, how to review the application. So I guess, what are your thoughts on this whole application process that's going to be different? And how does a department navigate this now? How, how can we navigate this better? Yeah, you know, we are, our residency program leadership is an amazing team. Um, they really work hard to encourage a holistic review and, and really work with our home students, of course, um, to really get them where they need and want to be. And I really, you know, one of the things that I think has been super helpful for our department through our residency program leadership is really defining our standards and practices and policies, right? Like what are our values and what is it that we do or don't do 
that reinforces or completely negates the values that we say we have. And I, you know, it really requires constant reflection and interrogation. You know, we did a, here's the feedback we got, or here's what we think we got, you know, do, how do we make the change? A holistic review can be just as successful with step as pass fail. I don't think the biggest problem is was or even was just step one scores. It was how it was used and how it was valued and making or step going to pass fail, which I support wholeheartedly is good, but without reflection and interrogation of how and why we use step one, then those practices will just flow towards the next thing. Maybe it's step two, or maybe it's AOA, or maybe it's the strength or name of the institution um, or who writes the letter of recommendations. There's so many ways that this can just, you know, flow downhill. We really have to have a stopgap for this is who we are and this is how we are going to navigate this. And I do think GME and, you know, I'm an otolaryngologist, but I do think graduate medical education in general can really learn from some of the practices that are being put in place for you and me for medical school admissions on looking at holistic review and really how we value or where we place strict academics in the process of evaluating and accepting students for medical school. And I think some of those principles can apply to the residency selection process. And I really, really um, value our residency team leadership because they really look at not just what we say we do or who we say we're, we are, but actually what we are doing and course correcting if we're not living up to who we say we are. And, you know, I think um, with the holistic review of the application, the biggest argument for against that um, or complaint of that would is time, right? Because, you know, if you have four or 500 applications and you're trying to get through those and review those and whittle it down to however many interviews you're going to offer, you know, being able to use an objective measure so you can filter applications cuts down that time. So at your institution with your holistic review, how do you address that manpower and that time that takes to do the holistic review? Like, is it just you have a lot of people on that committee or you just allow for a lot of time for it? Or have you figured out a way to, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to speak for Dr. Shannon Craft, who is our amazing residency program director. Um, so we and I do have a soapbox about this, <laughs> but I'll answer your question first. You know, we have um, we come together and we review like each of us reviews a certain amount of applications. And then we also like cross review. So I review my stack, um, but also there's someone else that is also reviewing the same people. So no one person. Well, unfortunately, probably Dr. Kraft, <laughs> our residency director, is probably is reviewing all of the applications, but the remainder of the faculty are reviewing a portion, but we also are um, scoring and that score has a second score, right? And so that is one of the ways that we uh, have worked with the manpower. Now, the that aspect. Now, my soapbox about this is, you know, as we, you know, trend into resilience training, you know, one of the things that is often forgot is that that time and manpower and effort, that's a structural problem. And there's no amount of, 
you need to do more service that's going to make that better. And what happens is, you know, people, human beings get put in the middle of that. You know, we need to do more. You're not doing enough. You know, there's 500 applications. Nobody has the time for that. And fair, but there are also structural things in place that allow for time and different aspects of our department and academic responsibilities that are not applied in this realm as well. And so that's a that's a structural concern that we're not addressing the the you know what is often addressed is how do we how do we how do we motivate people to do more right yeah that's so true it's how do we have our cake and eat it yes exactly so that's why i laughed i'm like okay so i'll answer your question and then i'll get on my soapbox because the reality is that shouldn't be a question and there's you know yeah yeah that's a that's a whole different podcast dr francis <laughs> That that's gonna be a whole nother one. Um, yeah, invite me to that one as well. <laughs> I will, I will. And for my boss, Dr. Mitchell, if you're listening, not just to complain, but well, I'll have some solutions for you. I'll come up with some ideas. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to tell Dr. Kraft. I'm like, don't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure we have time to um, talk about um, diversity a little bit. You know, I think our specialty still remains pretty predominantly white and male. And I want to kind of talk about, you know, what contributes to this and, you know, maybe, do, you know, do you think we have an issue of, of a leaky pipeline? Um, what, what can we be doing to diversify our specialty? Yeah, you know, great, great question. And I, at least what I'm hearing is like, how do we create a diverse workforce while supporting the workplace environment <laughs> with like principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, and anti-racism? And I could certainly speak on this for hours. Very important topic for me as a um, Black woman um, surgeon. I know the leaky pipeline metaphor has been used and it, and it makes sense um, to describe the homogeneity in medicine with respect to students underrepresented and historically excluded. Dr. Francis, before you move on, will you describe what the leaky pipeline is for people who may not know what that is? Sure. The leaky pipeline metaphor is generally um, used to discuss how we lose people who are underrepresented in, in medicine, but in STEM um, broadly. So I do kind of think it's bigger than that. There are such sort of structural barriers at each stage that make a physician, that make becoming a physician difficult. Not, you know, applying to medical school, interviewing to medical school, the environment or the culture while you're in medical school, uh, who's provided support or mentorship. Uh, that's those similar things can happen during the residency uh, process. And so we do have to think about that because it can be very isolating to not see anyone that's like you. And because that is often overlooked, it is very easy to not provide the same sort of resources, mentorship, and support that others get and that that's normal, right? So it's not necessarily like an extra bonus, but it's 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 normal. I have found that for uh, students who are underrepresented, uh, minoritized folks, there are so many barriers, and sometimes it's just not being seen, right? And if you're not seen, 
it is also more difficult to be promoted. It's also more difficult to be put on the research project or to be invited to, you know, A, B, and C that is going to help you network or, you know, meet the chairs of departments or meet the medical student clerkship directors that can really provide you guidance. And also ENT in particular is not, I mean, it's not, you know, common knowledge as far as when you're entering into medical school. And so if there aren't otolaryngologists, this is one of the things that I've been so happy about. I really started sort of my academic mid-ed process um, just by giving lectures is really just being visible and so that people knew, well, hopefully they knew that there was a thing called otolaryngology and could ask the questions about whether or not they think it's for them. And really to sort of demystify the process, it, it is a competitive specialty, but it is, and it is something that students can become. Right. And so I don't want I don't want otolaryngology to be this thing that is magical. There are actual people that are in it and you can, too. But it, and it's important to be able to see a woman. It's important to be able to see a black woman. It's important to be able to see a woman of color. It's important to be able to see LGBTQ plus otolaryngologists. It's important to see disabled otolaryngologists. It's important to see people. And so I really want to really diversify our workforce. <laughs> but I think it's so important that we support our workplace. There's work in the workplace that has to take place in order to make our recruitment strategies more meaningful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important, and again, that's another, another podcast or two <laughs> in itself. Um, but before we let you go, in terms of, I, I understand the importance of diversity, but what's hard, I think, is inclusion and retention. And it, it's, it's got to be intentional from all layers for uh, all around us. So whether it's somebody that's intentional for me or I'm intentional for somebody, it's always got to be in, the, in somebody's mind about to help with the inclusion and keeping and, you know, helping each other out so everybody comes up. How do we do that? Like, how do you make that a consistent um, culture shift? Or how do you, and maybe, you know, whether I guess for ENT and maybe, you know, I'm not that much at the medical school, but, you know, whether it's with your partners, your residents, or even with medical students, how do you, um, and I feel like it's with, it should start early, right? Like, it, it's got to start with the the MS1 or, you know, maybe the under. How do you how do you get to that level? Like, how do you do that? Constant self-reflection. Right. I think asking the question, who is here, who is not here, who is potentially being overlooked and that that's work. And that that is also what makes it difficult. It is absolutely work. I, uh, with the support of our health system and department, developed a equity lecture series. And even in that, deciding, you know, who I want to invite are topics that I want to explore. I also have to remind myself that what I am familiar with, what I am closest to, is not the sum of what needs to be discussed. And so, I, you know, I am constantly trying to think of 
how I can grow and really approaching it as what am I missing? Who is not at the table? Who is not a part of this decision making? Who would help this? You know, these are the questions that I really try to ask myself over and over and over again. And until it becomes normal, and I think sometimes we forget that this is this is different, right? This is a, a shift in the way that we're approaching a lot of different aspects of society, really, but medicine. And, you know, just like we started out as novices in otolaryngology and developed a system and repeated habits and grew and refined, we have to do that as well. We can't undo decades in a year or 18 months, and we couldn't become otolaryngologists in nine months either. And so we know how to do this. We've done it before. We continue to do it as as we transition from, you know, a busy clinical uh, pediatric otolaryngologist surgeon to someone who is in med ed leadership and leading different initiatives. Um, we start as a novice and we work our way towards expertise. And that requires uh, mistakes, vulnerability, it requires accountability, and it requires learning. And we can do this. We, we actually just have to put in the same effort. Yeah. Beautifully put. Thank you so much. Closing out, anything that you would like, you know, any any parting words or final thoughts for, for our listeners, anything that we maybe forgot to ask that you think is important um, to, to leave with our listeners today? Woo, a tagline. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> no, you know, I don't. I think this has been a great conversation and I do appreciate you inviting me to talk about these aspects of my clinical and non-clinical career that I love. ENT is super important to me. Uh, we've talked about mentorship and I definitely make a point to support my mentees through whatever decisions they make, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't want them to choose ENT. I have learned so much from other people that I think it's important for me to continue to uh, serve in that aspect. Like I said earlier, serve the people who serve. And mentorship and coaching principles are one way that I do that. And I'm passionate about it. I really want to see people bring their authentic selves to the workplace. I really want people to align their passions with their purpose in their careers. I really want to empower people. I want people to have agency. I love it. Thank you so much. I am about to bring my authentic self to my kids. <laughs> I'm going to bring my authentic self to work tomorrow. I'm going to bring my authentic self, hang out with my husband. <laughs> That's important, though, um, because at, not at one point did you think say anything about what's best for the quote institution or the department it's about what do, it's it's constant self-reflection and I think that's the most important thing so thank you so much yeah appreciate your time this is great no thank you it was it was a pleasure to have you um thank you to our sound engineer today Kieran Gannon shout out to Ann Dung and Chi Dung for social media and Varun Sagi and Wasik Nadim for our website articles and a big thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks for checking out the show today. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. This is, you know, helps us tremendously, helps us grow and support 
uh, our efforts to continue to, to bring you um, great speakers with various topics. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. What did I forget, Gopi? I think that's it. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Ghana, and Apple. That's a wrap. <laughs> that's a wrap. <laughs>